Hollywood. Lever Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Toilet Soap, brings you the Lux Radio Theater, starring Cary Grant and Phyllis Baxter in The Bishop's Wife. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. Irving Cummings. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. I love the sound of an old-time radio show. It just sends me back to a moment in time far before I was born, but yet it feels very familiar. Nostalgic, but contemporary. Why contemporary, you say? Because of what radio offers to the ear and what's happening in radio today. Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. From the 1920s until television permanently settled into our living rooms in the late 1950s, radio blasted out comedies, variety shows, adventures, and dramas to waiting listeners. Radio launched performers like Jack Benny and Fred Allen into stardom. It offered established stars like Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Jimmy Stewart, and Frank Sinatra, an audience during lulls in their film careers. It also allowed them to boost their exposure and the exposure of movies they were starring in. Radio became a second platform for Hollywood screenplays like The Bishop's Wife, a 1947 holiday movie starring David Niven, Cary Grant, and Loretta Young that resurfaced with a somewhat different cast on the Lux Radio Theater in 1949. Hi, Professor. How nice to see you again. Who are you? And how well you look after all these years. Well, don't you remember me? Uh, let's see. It wasn't Vienna, was it? Ah, uh, Vienna. Beautiful old Vienna. When I was lecturing on Roman history. Ah, uh, what splendid lectures they were. And what a one you were with the ladies. <laughs> Fancy you remembering that. I, uh, I've been standing on the corner watching you, Professor. You and Julia. You know Julia? In a way, yes. Poor girl. Why, she's unhappy. Yes. When were you in Vienna? Oh, many times. I, uh, <clears throat> I'm interested in Julia, Professor. And Henry. What seems to be their trouble? Oh, no special trouble, I imagine. Henry's a bishop now. Oh, yes. Uh, that used to be his church over there. Oh, St. Timothy. Perishing from neglect. Ah, uh, such a nice little church. Well, delighted to have seen you again, Professor. Many old-time radio shows were performed live and are lost. But the advent of recording technology gave producers and stars much more flexibility in performing and producing radio shows. Many of those old shows have survived, sometimes because the West Coast feeds had to be transcribed and radio stations like KIRO saved their transcriptions for decades, usually because some engineer thought it was worth saving. Thank goodness. Many of those shows have been carefully restored and preserved and protected by collectors and fans. The rise of podcasts has seen the clock run backwards in regards to the medium in a sense. Podcasts were first chat shows, little more than radio on demand. Then we saw the rise of stars. We saw the rise of focus shows or shows like Mark Maron's or the arrival of shows like Serial. Now the promise of the medium is drawing back creative writers, directors, performers into exploring the roots of the medium as a storytelling platform. And fans of the golden age of radio are dusting off old scripts and reintroducing a new generation to the joys of listening. We'll still call it radio, if I may. Felix Bennell is a local historian here in Seattle, a writer and radio producer. He's been producing a live radio show, a live holiday radio broadcast for the past few years. 
This year, he is again bringing The Bishop's Wife, starring familiar voices from KIRO Radio, to a town hall stage. This year, Cairo's Dave Ross leads the cast at University Temple Church on Friday, December 8th at 8 p.m. I have been a fan of old-time radio since WBBM in Chicago broadcast old recordings of The Shadow and The Green Hornet in the 1960s. Today, the Internet has fueled the compilation of old-time radio shows on a variety of websites. People can rediscover Lum and Abner, The Whistler, or one of my favorites, Rocky Jordan. Check it out. He was kind of a two-fisted saloon keeper in Cairo. It's just a click away. Felix joined me for a long talk about the future of radio, of podcasting, recorded and live in the age of the independent producer. Why, Professor, how nice to see you again. Hmm? Who are you? And how well you look after all these years. Well, don't you remember me? Let's see. It wasn't Vienna, was it? Ah, Vienna. Beautiful old Vienna. When I was lecturing on Roman history. Oh, and what splendid lectures they were. And what a one you were with the ladies. (laughs) Fancy remembering that. I've been standing on the corner watching you, Professor. You and Julia. Do you know Julia? In a way, yes. Poor girl. Why? She's unhappy? Yes. When were you in Vienna? Oh, many times. I, uh, I'm interested in Julia, Professor, and Henry. What seems to be their trouble? Oh, no special trouble, I imagine. Henry's a bishop now. Oh, yes. That used to be his church, over there. Ah, St. Timothy's. Perishing from neglect. Oh, it's such a nice little church. Well, delighted to have seen you again, Professor. All right, but here we go. Here's my first question. This is, this is where I'm starting with all this stuff. Um, we are seeing a renaissance in audio because of podcasts. And it's not just a renaissance in terms of news or talk shows, but we are seeing all sorts of new comedy and dramas show up, written pieces for audio. And as somebody who loves old-time radio, what do you think about this renaissance? Yeah, I think it's pretty amazing, and it's also pretty overwhelming. Um, with old-time radio, you know, the body of work exists, and you can search through it, and most of it's online, and it's nobody's making any new shows that were produced 70 years ago or 50 years ago, so it's this sort of easy-to-digest amount of material. This new the podcast revolution, I, you know, I'm in my late 40s. I feel like a dinosaur. I, I hear about all these new podcasts all the time. I rarely find the time to sample them, but they all sound really cool to me. And it's uh, it's it's almost like they, with all the different ways you can listen to podcasts, for someone my age, there hasn't been the correct tool created yet that lets me manage them in my head. Because I, I'm a terrestrial radio person. I love radio. I love the fact that you sometimes have to tune in a show at a certain time on a certain day because the people doing it are live. Now, that immediacy is really key to my enjoyment of audio. And so I've been slow to move into the whole uh, time-shifted audio revolution that we're experiencing right now. I expect to get to it eventually. <laughs> but right now, it's, it's, just, it's a little overwhelming. But it's great because there's so many new podcasts of not only radio drama, but just you know, any topic you want. Somebody's spending time putting together, you know, it... it it runs the gamut from really high quality stuff to stuff that's just, you know, two guys sitting talking to each other. But the fact that the tools are so inexpensive and the ability to distribute is there's there's no barriers. It's mind blowing. I, I feel bad for the historians 100 years from now who will have to sort through all this stuff and figure out what it all means. <laughs> you there's your historian <laughs> hat coming on. 
right there. But you know, you said live. I mean, one of the things that you are doing, um, you're doing at the town hall uh, event that you've done in the past, at the the one I attended at Triple Door uh, for thank for Halloween, is you are also live, just like uh, from the '40s. You do the countdown, and you are live. What is that? What, what do you think that immediacy does for your in-house audience? And and also the you know the outhouse audience the, the outhouse audience and also <laughs> yeah we have we have a lot of people listening from their outhouse <laughs> <laughs> the, the audience uh, out in the in the in the broadcast realm though I think we'll keep outhouse glad, audience <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad this interview we're doing is on tape because I could talk about the relevance of, of live remote broadcasting for a few hours and I know you'll let me include you'll include my entire quote here yeah no um you know these these radio plays. I started doing these. The first one I did was back, I think, in 2000 at the Museum of History and Industry for, for the holiday season. I, I wrote a 60-minute play. It, it's pretty clunky now. And we did it live to tape. It was a Saturday afternoon at Mohai, the old Museum of History and Industry there in Montlake. And there were about 100, and, eh, 100 maybe 120 people in the audience, not a big crowd. And, you know, it was fun doing it. And we did it as if we were live on the air. We didn't stop or fix any mistakes or anything. And, you know, the, uh, the radio station we were working with back then was KIXI, and they turned it around and played it on the air that night. And I remember driving to a holiday party and, you know, actually took a portable radio with me into the holiday party I went to. And I had it. I was playing it for people saying, hey, listen to our radio show. I guess I've always been kind of an irritating uh, radio person. Anyway, um, it was very cool to hear that on the air and know that we just recorded that six or seven hours earlier. And that, that, that sufficed. We did that again in 2001. But then in 2002, we had the opportunity to do a live show. We did the, the old original script of It's a Wonderful Life. We were on King FM, did it live from the museum. There were maybe 400 people showed up, um, and it went out live over King FM on a Saturday night in December. And the idea of just sitting there, like in those few seconds before the clock hits the top of the hour and that minute hand and second hand are straight up and down, and you know that at that instant, the hundreds, maybe thousands, who knows, but people have the ability in the radius of the transmitting tower to tune that in and hear what we're doing and pay attention to us for that hour and know that, you know, anything could go wrong. Anything could go right. It could be a great show. It could be a bad show. You can hear people coughing in the background. It's that sense of being able to participate in something remotely. That's what made radio such a phenomenon in the 1920s. The ability of people at their, in their farmhouses or out in the country or up on a mountain or at a ship at sea to be able to tune in and hear what was going on or hear music being played in a, in a crude studio somewhere in a, on the rooftop of a building in a, in a metropolis, that ability for humans to connect that way, that still gives me chills thinking about that. And if we can recreate that or we can uh, summon that or bring that back to life for an hour every Halloween and every Christmas, that's just the coolest thing in the world to me. I, just, I still, oftentimes during the live broadcast, I'll step back behind the actors and I'll look over their shoulders or behind their heads and look out at the audience out in the darkness, knowing there's a few hundred people there in the auditorium in the triple door, or maybe five or 600 as we've had at town hall in the past. And I sit and I think like, oh my goodness, I'm standing here on the stage. These people are reading words from a script. I've got a sound effects guy making cool noises. I've got a live musician doing you know musical fills in between the scenes. And this is being listened to out and around the Puget Sound. It's also online. So it's, you know, it's, available to millions of people if they wanted it. I don't think that many people are tuning in, but that's pretty amazing. Maybe, maybe it's an ego thing. Maybe it's, a, it's the, the, the notion that people are paying attention to this little group for this particular hour while we're 
we've taken the time to do some rehearsal and put on a little show. It's like maybe that's that, that elemental human thing of sitting around a campfire and telling a story where you, you have people's attention. Well, you're doing that in the it's amazing to me. Anyway, it blows me away still. Well, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that to be a, like to boast or anything, but I just I never tire of doing that hour. Like it's, it's sometimes a toil to do all the rehearsal and everything and get a, get stuck in traffic on the way to the theater. But once the show's underway, it's just it's magic. I can't I can't really describe it. Well, we talk about, uh, you know, this podcast is is called In the Moment. And in a sense, you are talking about something that does not exist so much in the digital world or in, as we have seen changes on television where we don't all gather around that communal blue light that comes out at the same time. You're talking about a moment that can be shared. Absolutely. And I think nowadays it's like, I think I've called this before the first down and 9-11 effect, where the only time anybody's watching the same thing is the Super Bowl or a terrorist attack. And that's sad to me because I grew up in there. I'm born in the late 60s. So I grew up watching you know, live TV shows in the 70s and 80s, whether it was you know holiday parades or Super Bowl or whatever, where that the entire nation, usually it's the United States, is gathered around that hearth and connected all at the same moment. And that, that happens less and less. And I think we lose something that way. I think even, even with local media, I mean, there's fewer and fewer radio stations and TV stations who do anything other than live news or live traffic reports. And that, that doesn't knit together a community around a, a shared culture or a shared regional identity. And I, I, I think about that stuff because, you know, living here in Seattle, we have this incredibly rich, bizarre culture goes back into, you know, pre-contact times with Native American history. But the, the popular culture history in terms of the music and the TV and the literature and just the, the lifestyle here is just is bizarre and it's, it's specific to this region. And I feel like local media used to celebrate that quite a bit. And it was, it was present on local media. Maybe it still is a little bit with these radio shows that we're doing with the town hall. I hope they are. I hope it is. But... I feel like we lose something when everything becomes more um, homogenized. Like if, if Seattle becomes like Portland or like Baltimore or like Miami, but we, we lose something. But you think the liveness, the actual liveness is part of the formula that contributes to that common culture? Because, you know, I can listen to something. People are going to listen to this. It's recorded, but it'll feel live to them because it's their moment when they are experiencing it. I guess I'm a snob. <laughs> I was I'm a snob about about live broadcasting. Whether whether it's not so much about TV. I, I've done a little bit of work in TV. I've produced a couple of live TV shows, and it's just really stressful because you have all the cameras and the lights, and it's a lot of graphics and stuff to manage. Live radio, where it's just one person or a few people sitting in a room talking on microphones and hopefully having a conversation that's compelling enough for people to want to tune into at that moment. That's maybe I'm old-fashioned, um, but I feel like there's that. You know, like it, I guess it happens in the Northwest whenever there's a big storm. I, I sort of tune into stations that do live news and I listen to their coverage. And I know that, you know, oh, it just blew 50 miles an hour out at point, point, no point. Or, you know, it's, this is going on in Tacoma and up in Everett. I like knowing that I'm part of that community at that moment. And I don't, if that makes me a weirdo or if that makes me someone who's just obsessed with something that's so uh, archaic, I don't know. But I just... I feel like in, in your you know in your in your personal relationships when you're with one person or a few people, the more present you are and the more you're listening and connected to that person in that moment, the stronger and healthier your relationship is. I think the same is true of broadcasting. If I if we're doing something and we're talking about it live and it's interesting enough and compelling enough and convenient enough 
that people want to tune in and hear it at that moment, then that's that makes it more powerful or potentially more powerful, let's say, than something on tape like a podcast. Well, you know, is that is that am I am I losing am I am I out of my mind, Steve? You tell me. You you've done both. You've done well. Lots you know of you know I'm radio. I am I am partial to live. You know that, and that's why yeah. you know weekday was live for twenty thirty years, whatever it was, because because yeah. it was the live. It was that notion, as you say, of here's how we're feeling right now at this moment that yeah. um, energizes it. But I, 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 and I think most folks feel that way, but folks also find a way to, you know, tune in later and enjoy it later. You know, um, you, uh, you have to wonder if there's a potential for live to return with this technology too, this technology we're using, this podcast technology, because of all the innovations. And I wonder if live shows that are downloadable, I mean, that are streamable, will have um, or are having similar impacts. As you say, there's so much that it's often hard to tell, but something's happening in yes. this world. That's a great question. And I, I, and I know I listen, to some, I listen to some remote broadcasting live just because I'm kind of an insomniac. And if I wake up at 2 in the morning, I know I can tune in. And this is going to sound like I'm a lunatic. And I, and, and I am a lunatic, I guess. I love CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Company. Each um, each province has its own morning show. It's roughly on from eh, five to eight thirty local time. So I often tune in uh, the local broadcast from St. John's, Newfoundland, <laughs> and they talk about the weather. You know, it's like minus twenty five degrees, and they talk about like the traffic, which is non existent, and they talk about Canadian culture, which I love. And I you know I fall back asleep after thirty minutes, but it's it's live and it's it's local to the people who are producing it. I'll, I'll tune in. The, the BBC does, of course, lots of wonderful international broadcasting. They also have a station that's based in London that's essentially a talk radio station that lots of old English people call into. And after the, when there, were, there was a terrorist attack in London several months ago, I tuned in to listen then. And I'll often listen, you know, sort of late at night, West Coast time to hear the next morning's program in London. And it's fascinating, because again, because it's live and it, for the people involved, they're bringing a different level of energy to it than someone who knows if there was a mistake, they could go back, they could edit it, they could bring in some other audio. I think to me, I guess it all comes down to whatever most recreates the most basic of human interactions, that where it's live and where there's personalities and they're experiencing the same things you're experiencing, whether it's the weather or the, the temperature or the time of day or whatever, they're experiencing that in real time. That's when I feel that that connection to broadcasters and again maybe maybe that makes me a an outlier or a weirdo or something but i just i guess i crave that community that really good live broadcasting can create and if we can pull that off for an hour in a theater in seattle with a with a old holiday radio play ah, that's i'm the luckiest guy in the world to get to work on this kind of stuff well tell me something in terms of that you know these uh these um things that we listen to on old time radio that are now back easily accessible uh, these were, tran you know, as they say in the old time radio shows, transcribed because they started recording these things after a while. Mm -hmm. Do you think that the shift to transcription changed the way um, those shows were uh, presented and, um, and taken in by the audience? Definitely. I mean, I have a couple of favorite shows from specific eras. My absolutely favorite program during World War II is The Great Gildersleeve. Yep. Um, which is a generally regarded as the first situation comedy. It it was a spinoff from Fibber McGee and Molly. I don't want to get into the weeds on this, but that show throughout World War II was um, performed before a live audience. 
it was broadcast live to the East Coast and the, uh, what would that be, the Central Time Zone. And then um, for a while there, they even did a separate, a second live broadcast for the West Coast. Same actors, same crew would get together, I guess, about two hours later and do the same show again. Um, but the, those shows, you hear the live audience laughing. Um, the, the show is loaded with double entendres about sexuality. I mean, it's for, for 1942, 43, it's a pretty risque show. I mean, it surprised me when I first started paying attention to it maybe 10 years ago, how risque it is and how many, how they slip things in that are just sort of like, wow, they really could get away with just, just with like a, a single word or a, a, the delivery of the phrase. And you hear the audience kind of tittering and like kind of getting the joke, you know? And um, because that show was that during World War II, is the immediacy of radio during World War II is a whole other topic. But the fact that the war is raging, and back in the back stateside, there's a sector of the economy of the economy that's devoted to producing entertainment that a lot of times has war themes interwoven into it about scrap drives and about preserving um, or conserving uh, precious resources and everything. And then uh, this these brilliantly written scripts um, and these brilliant character actors who just had incredible chemistry. Knowing that it's it's like being at a live theater. It's it's like seeing live theater, and that's it's its own show. The the, the strength of that show are the jokes and the the chemistry of the cast. What Fast about, forward about five. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say so that's the World War II era live presentation of a situation comedy is just there's nothing better. Skip ahead about five years to the the so-called golden age, the late 1940s, which is a little ironic because as TV was was arising as a force. Radio had one last gasp of really good uh, quality programming. And one of the best studio programs, in my mind, is um, Gunsmoke. And that's that's not recorded before a live audience. It's not live to tape. That's They probably uh, re-recorded things and carefully added stuff in later. That's a, It's a drama, and it's well-written, and it's well-produced, and it's got a great cast. But, you know, it's it's not full of laughs. It's not set in the present time. It's a it's a western. It's set in the 1860s, I guess, or 1870s, and it um, it skillfully uses all the tools of a studio in terms of you know music, in terms of really uh, complicated sound effects and um, sound environments of being out on the out on the prairie or being in the saloon, and that you know that, it doesn't bother me that that show's recorded in a studio. It, it's not an issue. Began, yeah, because it's not topical to World War II. It's not topical to the 1940s. It's a Western, so it's already sort of doesn't have to be live to be as powerful as the live Gildersleeve show was five, six years earlier. Well, tell me, tell me about um, this, this, this show, this script, The Bishop's Wife, because it was a movie, but it was also, I think, a Lux Radio Theater presentation with some of the same actors. Uh, yeah, it was originally yeah. produced. Was it produced though to tape, or did it was it produced before a live audience? That's a really good question. It's hard Lux to Radio tell. Theater, it's hard yeah, to tell when you listen. Original recording. Yeah, I think the Lux Radio Theater. See, because this that's a really good question. I should know the answer to that. But Bishop's Wife is from 1948, and I wouldn't be surprised if they were recording that recording that live to tape. I know they they had a live audience. They did it down in Los Angeles at the theater right there off the. Sunset Boulevard or, or uh, Hollywood Boulevard, um, but I know that it, it was, Lux came on in 1934, and for at least the first uh, decade, they were doing all their shows live, just because there wasn't a practical way to tape things and distribute it, and it was just cheap to do it live and send it out over the network lines to all the affiliates around the country. Actually, I wish I don't know the answer to that. You've, you've stumped me on that one. That's a great question. Uh, it's it's 50-50 in 1948, but I would guess it's probably recorded. But with a live yeah, audience. I don't, 
Yeah, definitely with a live audience. And that's that's probably the that's that's a good compromise. I, part of it, you know, I said I was a snob about about live broadcasting. Wait, there wait. are lots of radio theater groups, but. When you say recorded, you mean that the, the live audience was was watching the actors, though, right on stage. Correct, almost yeah. exactly the way they do, you know, sitcoms now in Hollywood. When you get free tickets and you go wait in line and then you get and you see them film a show, you're part of the audience, kind of laughing and responding to the applause sign and the laughter sign and everything like that. Yeah, but then they'll beef it up if they have to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why do yeah. you why do you like this script? Why do you want to do as opposed to you know it's a wonderful life? Why do you why are you doing this? I understand why it's a Christmas show. It's all about faith and and, and during the holidays. But what what appeals to you about this story as a, as a radio piece? You know the the original movie, The Bishop's Wife. It's not as well known as It's a Wonderful Life or Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, both of which also have Lux Radio Theater scripts and both of which we produced in the past. We, we do these in rotation, you know, and I think, you know, the, the audience always responds, it's a wonderful life. That's our always a, a, a blockbuster. We could sell, but we, we, we couldn't do that every year, of course. Bishop's Wife is a, it's, the movie itself is worth another look. I don't know why it wasn't, isn't as well known as It's a Wonderful Life. It's got, you know, Cary Grant as an angel, David Niven as a bishop, um, Loretta Young as the bishop's wife. And it's, I like it because the, Part of the subplot is that they're trying to raise money to build a new cathedral. And I remember when we first produced this show, I was working at the Museum of History and Industry, and we were trying to raise money to build a new museum. <laughs> sort of like, there are all these sort of inside jokes about a capital campaign to raise money for a building. But the original movie is, is charming. It's got a charming supporting cast. Monty Woolley, who's uh, much better known for his role in uh, The Man Who Came to Dinner. He plays this sort of old scholarly figure. Um, and just the, the chemistry between Cary Grant, who is just a brilliant screen actor, and David Niven, who's also a great actor, and Loretta Young, who is pretty much forgotten nowadays, but is just a, was a real stalwart actress in the 1940s. They're just really good actors who put on a really good show um, in, the, in the film. And it translated well to the script. Uh, to be honest, I mean, there are some Lux Radio Theater scripts that do not translate well like from the original movies. Um, Wonderful Life is one of the great ones. Whoever wrote that script, it's a, you know 58 minutes long or whatever, boiled down the two-hour-long movie and gives you this very efficient fix of your Wonderful Life movie every year in a very short period of time. Um, Miracle on 34th Street, the script's not so good. I've, we've presented that one a few times, and I've actually edited that one quite a bit. <laughs> I've rewritten parts to make it clearer and make it... Um, to make it better, I guess. Maybe that's maybe that sounds really egotistical. But I remember there, I got a, I tracked down a copy of the original script from the Lux Radio archives. It was on microfilm at the J. Walter Thompson archives at the University of North Carolina, I think. So it was an actual facsimile photocopy of the original script, and it it was hand marked up on the front. It said something like, you know, not a very good show. Um, cast was pretty flat. <laughs> sort of like, oh, this was great. I remember looking at that, thinking, oh Jesus, why are we going to do this script then? But um, as I say, I did tweak with it a bit to make it a little bit better. Didn't have to tweak with Bishop's Wife at all. It's, it's just a really well-told story with some really great characters. And the actors we have playing it um, are well-known radio people here at the KIRO, where we're, who's broadcasting the show. And um, the core, the sort of a love triangle in the show between the angel, who was played by Cary Grant, the bishop played by David Niven, the bishop's wife played by Loretta Young, for that triangle in this radio production, I've got three people from Cairo who've been working with each other for, I think, about 25 years. So Dave Ross is going to play um, the angel. 
Dory Monson is going to play the bishop and Ursula Reutin is going to play the bishop's wife. All three of them are experienced actors with other drama stuff they've done in other parts of their life. And they have this chemistry together that I'm hoping will translate into chemistry in the show and on the stage and through the speaker. Yeah. And you can't fix it, Felix. You know, you, you'll have <laughs> exactly. to rehearse it and then it's live. And then, but then the fun thing is, is as the show reaches about the halfway point, I look at my timing notes in the rehearsal script and think, oh, geez, are we going to be able to nail this thing at the top of the hour to end it on time? In the past, we've worked with smaller radio stations who didn't really care so much about when we ended because it was just like, if we ran past the top of the hour because of sloppy directing on my part, they just kept us on the air until whenever we finished. In some cases, it was like six or seven minutes late, which is terrible. I shouldn't even be admitting that. But I've tried in the last couple of years to really nail the timing. And that for me is a big stressful fun part, kind of like a, I don't know, it's it's like a roller coaster ride because I have little marks on the script saying like, okay, in rehearsal at this point, we were at 30 minutes. And right now we're at 31 minutes. That means we're running long. I have to kind of, I, I tiptoe around the stage and whisper in the actor's ear saying, you got to really speed it up. We're running, we're running behind. And I kind of like make little symbol signals with my hand and everything because it's, it's not the end of the world if we don't nail the timing, but it's become a, a point of pride for me to try to nail the timing. Because for me, I'm getting to direct a live radio play, which hasn't really been done frequently for 50, 60 years. And so I feel like it's a special privilege I get. And I, you know, nobody would really care. But to me, it's just a, a point of personal pride to try to nail the timing. And it's just fun to watch the actors try to respond and start to talk really fast and limit their uh, emoting and kind of compress everything down. It's, 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 it's an exciting ride. That's great. A live radio play. Sure. Do you think, what do you think? Do you think if you were to, you and me, actually, if you and I were to try to do a regular live radio drama comedy uh, and, you know, we were good writers <laughs> and had good actors, <laughs> do you think people, I mean, just from looking at your audience and, and thinking about this, you do on a you know seasonal basis, do you think people would turn out? In other words, it's back to that first question. Is something changing that is maybe uh, appealing to people who are looking for that moment of communal engagement? I mean, I'm hoping so. I, think, I just wonder yeah. what you think. I think so. I've, I've fantasized a lot about maybe doing a monthly live radio, uh, like a, not quite a soap opera, but some kind of a serial drama comedy thing that had a of a recurring set of characters that you wouldn't have to completely develop and present as new people every month, but that over time would develop personae. And idea of doing it weekly, I don't think I could, that would be a full-time job to do that weekly. Um, do it monthly, you know, without any financial support, that might be, might be feasible. Um, you mentioned that uh, we did a show in October at the Triple Door, which is this fabulous bar and restaurant in downtown Seattle. I've fantasized about doing a, like the first Monday of every month, do a, do a, like a live radio event that happens, you know, on, on what would normally be a quiet night for the entertainment community. Um, that'd be like a cheap cover price and the venue would make their money off the drinks and the food. And it, did, it wouldn't matter how many people showed up but you, and it, you, you have to take some time to develop a following and the writing would have to be really good. You'd have to have guest stars every month that gave it sort of a new fresh appeal and maybe, maybe connected with some different part of the community than, than would the previous month. And the writing would have to be top notch and you'd have to have like an arc and a showrunner. You'd have to think about, I'd think of it maybe six episodes ahead and really be headed somewhere. Maybe not with the specifics, but I think about that and it sounds kind of exhausting to me. Um, <laughs> unless someone was willing to pay me to do it. If there was, 
if there was money to do that, if someone, some, if I found some source to say like, here, we'll, we'll cover two years of expenses for you to try this, that would be awesome. I think that'd be a blast because there's certainly interest in the audience. There's interest in the performers. Um, and the talent is here in Seattle, uh, mainly because of Jim French, who kept doing radio drama throughout the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s when nobody was doing any radio drama. Um, we have sound effects people here. We have musicians here who are comfortable playing in the live broadcast. And we have radio stations like Cairo who understand how cool it is to give their listeners an opportunity to come in person, see their favorite radio people on stage, talk with them after the show at the little party that always happens, and then kind of you know know that they're connecting face to face with people who they ordinarily only send out stuff you know one way across the speaker to. Yeah. Well, okay, and let, let's let's make that happen, and we'll call it the Duffy's Tavern or something like that. <laughs> I think an ensemble thing like that—that's—that's that's the yeah, a setting that's sort of a, a setting that's easy to recreate that it lends itself to all sorts of different things. Yeah, that's those the, the brilliant shows always have that kind of combination of just things that add up to lightning in a bottle. Yeah, well, that that was when radio was at its best, right? Lightning in a bottle. Absolutely. All right, Felix. I look forward to seeing you on stage. Same here. Um, you're going to be there, aren't you? I'm going to be there. Yeah. I'm yeah. Be there. All right. I got. I have a part for you. Um, so hopefully, I don't look forward to you having to edit this thing. Sorry. That's all right. No, <laughs> I'm. I may only edit parts of it. That's the beauty. I've been. I've been putting some of this up as a full-on, you know, long conversation. I might drop mm -hmm. in some clips. I might even leave this mm -hmm. part where I'm saying what I'm going to do. Um, I like it. And uh, but then I'll you know there'll be a shorter version for the for the in the moment podcast in you know a longer version for at length, which is awesome. Which is a podcast <laughs> I started because I thought that it would be fun to just talk at length, even if most people are going, "Oh my God, not again." That's great. <laughs> I love it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thanks for letting me do this with you. I appreciate it. And yeah. let me know when it steps up. Send me the links, and I'll put it on social media, and we'll spread it around through a little Seattle Radio Theater group and everything. So. Will do. I will do that. It'll be in the next couple days, but I will let you know. Oh, right on. Thanks, Steve. All right. See you again. Bye. Bye. Your prayer has been answered. That's not true. I prayed for a cathedral. No, no. You prayed for guidance. That's been given to you, Henry. I believe I'm being paged. Uh, just a minute, please. Goodbye, Henry. I'm being paid. <laughs> Just a minute, please. Well, goodbye, Henry. Oh, uh, if we should need you again, will you come back? Oh, not I. I'm requesting an assignment at the other end of the universe. Is that because I was so difficult? Oh, no, this difficulty was in me. When an immortal finds himself in being the mortal, trusted to his care, it's a definite sign of danger. Uh, yes, yes, I heard you the first time. <laughs> A 2008 production of The Bishop's Wife, produced by Felix Bennell and members of KIRO Seattle. And the 1949 version from the Lux Radio Theater, starring Cary Grant. Felix Bennell is a journalist and a producer, also a history writer. He is producing the 2017 Town Hall edition of The Bishop's Wife, starring various folks from KIRO Radio. It's going to be at the University Temple Church December 8th, Friday at 8 p.m. You should check it out. And thank you for listening to At Length with Steve Scher. 
I know we do go at length sometimes. Let me know what you think. If it's uh, too long or too short, too much or too little, you can email me, sscher at gmail.com. Look forward to hearing from you. And we'll be back again soon with another edition of At Length. You know, you can also hear a shorter version of this along with other important moments from Town Hall's previous two weeks. Folks come to Town Hall speaking now during its hiatus from its main building all over the city. Scholars and thinkers and artists. Ginny Palmer pulls together some of the best moments from the last two weeks of their appearances at Town Hall, presents them to you at the In the Moment podcast. And I bring you an interview with an upcoming author or scholar, or in this case, radio producer. Check it out. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it at the Town Hall webpage, townhallseattle.org. Thanks again. Happy holidays.